Nina Hall is the author of Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era, Think Global, Act Local. She is an assistant professor in international relations at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She previously worked at the Hurdy School of Governance, where she published her first book, Displacement, Development, and Climate Change, International Organizations Moving Beyond Their Mandates. She is the co-founder of an independent and progressive think tank, New Zealand Alternative. She has been a senior fellow at the Weizenbaum Institute and a faculty affiliate at the SNF Agora Institute. Nina Hall, welcome to the Creative Process in One Planet podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So you're going to share a passage from Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era. Think Global, Act Local. The passage is from the introduction. Digital advocacy organizations are recognized as influential actors by the media, politicians, and some academics. In 2016, GetUp, an Australian digital advocacy organization, was named by the Australian Financial Review as one of the top 10 actors with covert power in Australia. Campact in Germany has powerfully mobilized public opinion against the transatlantic trade and investment partnership. Move On was one of the leading advocacy organizations mobilizing people against the Iraq war in the United States. Meanwhile, Lead Now, a digital advocacy organization in Canada, helped to unseat Prime Minister Stephen Harper in the 2015 Canadian federal election. This new model of advocacy organization has spread around the world, from the United States to Europe, Australasia, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. 19 digital advocacy organizations claim to have a total of over 20 million members. In 2021, there were organizations in Austria, Australia, Canada, Germany, Hungary, Ireland, Israel, Italy, France, New Zealand, Netherlands, Poland, Romania, Serbia, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, UK, and in the US. While political communication scholars have studied the emergence of these organizations in their national context, few have focused on the transnational dimensions of their advocacy and what this new model of advocacy means for international relations. My aim in writing this book is threefold. First, I want to understand how the same form of advocacy organization emerged in such different contexts. What drove the global spread of digital advocacy organizations? Second, I want to contribute to international relations theories of advocacy, which have typically focused on larger international non-governmental organizations, such as Oxfam and Greenpeace, or transnational advocacy networks focused on particular issues, such as climate change, human rights, or landmines. I ask, to what extent do digital advocacy organizations require new IR theories of advocacy? Third, I explore if and how digital advocacy organizations campaign transnationally. After all, many scholars have suggested that the internet would enable more frequent transnational networking and mobilizing. Some have even suggested that digital technology could create a global civil society, as many trans-border civic activists regard themselves as world citizens, in addition to national state citizens. The underlying logic in these arguments is that faster and cheaper international communications will lead to greater international solidarity and more frequent transnational collective action. Yes, it's so fascinating. I hadn't realized how the landscape had changed. When did you first become aware of it? In a way, this grows out of your previous book. So my previous work had been on the UN, on a very different type of organization. And I wasn't actually aware of Move On or all the other organizations I just discussed until about 2015, when I was meeting with a friend of a friend who told me of this group that was meeting in Berlin, where I lived at the time, of digital advocacy organizations. And she said, yeah, it's this group, Move On's part of it. There's a New Zealand group, Action Station, and I'm from New Zealand, and a German group, Campact. And I thought, this is fascinating. How come I've never heard about these groups? And what are they doing? Why are they meeting in Berlin? And 
as I got more and more into it, I realized there was a significant literature in the political communications scholarship on these organizations. But in my own field and international relations, no one seemed to be paying any attention. So as I said in that opening section, some academics, political communication scholars have written about their impact, but not international relations. So that was kind of the launch pad for my research was 2015 and trying to understand how these organizations are working transnationally and what this model means for the scholarship that we have in international relations. Why do you feel it wasn't being looked at? I'm wondering if it's because they have such brief campaigns. It's constantly evolving. Yeah, that's a fair point. There's a couple of reasons. I think that slipped attention, partly because IR has tended to focus on large, professionalized international NGOs, groups that many of your listeners are probably familiar with, like Greenpeace, Oxfam, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty. So all the books sitting behind me in my office are often really great case studies and analysis of this, and that's extremely useful. But in being focused on those now well-established professional NGOs, IR scholarship had missed, in my view, the rise of new forms of organization, which the digital era had enabled. So scholars since the 90s had written about how digital communications could be useful for sharing messages and tactics between different activists around the world. But they hadn't asked, how is it going to change the very form, the very organizational structure? And this is where I think political communication scholars who really got interested in digital technology and how it was shaping political communications had done some writing. And they had spelled out the ways that we were seeing new, what they called hybrid forms of organization that were blurring the boundaries between social movements or media or political parties. But most of the literature was focused on national impact. So for IR scholars, it was flying under the radar because these were organizations that might be shaping national debates, but they weren't seen to have an international impact. And one of the things my book does is spell out how even though these groups might be targeting national actors, so ministers, government officials, prime ministers, they can influence public opinion in important ways on international issues like trade, climate, and refugees. So I'm really making a case that IR needs to study these actors. They're not the only ones and needs to have a more sophisticated understanding of how digital technologies is changing the very form of organization. Exactly. It's not just using digital technology. It's also mimicking, but it's the rapid response and it doesn't have this slow, it's just not traditional. Just give you unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. So one of the main arguments in the book is that digital technology is important to change how organizations campaign. And it's not a matter of campaigning online or offline, right? There's a, often people hear the title of my book and they go, oh, it's all just slacktivism, you know? Whatever you do online, it's slacktivism. Luckily, the academic debates move past that because most advocacy groups operate both online and offline. What I argue instead is that digital technology has enabled groups to be rapid response, like you said, extremely member-driven, so they can listen to their members and do something called analytic activism, that's a term coined by David Karp, and be multi-issue generalists. So if I have a second, I'll just elaborate on that, because the ways that that works is much more than meets the eye. So when you're rapid response, that means a news story can come, you know, on one hour and two hours later, a campaign can be started by the organizations I study. So it could be related to refugee issues. And that's one of the case studies in the book in 2015, when there was increasing concern about what was happening on Europe's borders with refugees and asylum seekers. 
Some of these groups that had no expertise on refugee rights switched very rapidly when they saw public opinion changing. So digital technologies enable you to do that because you don't have to send out letters. You don't have to go through. They've got light internal hierarchies. But not just that, the fact that they could listen to their members and figure out what their members cared about is also important. And they did that through testing campaigns. So most members are people who have subscribed to a petition or a previous campaign, and the group uses their email address to contact them for future campaigns. And so they might say, okay, you campaigned and you cared about refugees in 2015. Now the climate conference is on in Egypt today. We want you to express your concern about how poorly governments are acting on climate change. And we want to mobilize you to do this action or to sign this petition tomorrow. And so they can switch very quickly and they can test which terms will really motivate their members. So they can test subject lines. It's called A-B testing. Do people care more about climate change if they say, we need to tackle climate change today now to help your children and your grandchildren, or we need to tackle climate change today to save Antarctica and the penguins. And if we find out that more people care about the penguins, then you can send that campaign out to millions of members. So I can go into more depth on this, but I think the important thing for your listeners that I'm arguing is that this model is distinct from earlier forms that we saw NGOs like Oxfam or Greenpeace that run long-term sustained campaigns driven more by staff and by their expertise. The groups I study are rapid response, multi-issue, and they're switching quickly between campaigns based on reactions to their members. And there's strengths and limits of that model. And so they're using some kind of AI technology. I mean, not to my knowledge so much AI. I think a better way to think about it is probably in terms of collecting a lot of data, big data. So if you have a million or two million people on your database and you can listen in, for instance, to what emails they open so you can get feedback from your members if you send out, for instance, you want them to give a monthly donation and you send out one email that says exactly the same thing and it says donate now with a blue button. And then you send a second email to another group that says donate now with an orange button. Now, what the organizations learned, as I mentioned in my book, is that the orange button performs better than the blue button. So they can optimize their messaging. They can optimize how they campaign because they can test different frames, different colors, which bring benefits, obviously. They're highly aware of how their communications are read and received by members. The downside of it, though, is that they're trying to always maximize growth of members and maximize more short-term engagement. So one of the critiques of the organization is that they're just reacting to revealed preferences and that they don't necessarily do the follow-up in some of their campaigns. So one of the limitations is this idea that advocacy is based on being really committed to something, right? If you think of the women's suffragettes, they really cared about getting women the right to vote. So they didn't just stop when somebody said, oh, actually, we think that's not a good idea. They kept campaigning for years in many countries, in many cases. Well, these groups that I study, digital advocacy organizations, that's not their form. Their form is not to set the agenda and then campaign for years. Their typical model of campaigning is to act when an issue is already on the public agenda. So like the climate example I gave previously, other groups have put climate change on the agenda and made it the big issue it is today. And these groups can then sort of swoop in and try and push a decision across the line, like legislation, say, in Congress or in Parliament to take more climate. So their limit is that they can't do agenda setting most of the time. So they're not doing proactive campaigning, although that there are some exceptions to this. 
but they tend not to have issue expertise, which can come with risks unless they partner with established NGOs. So there are examples of them partnering very well with NGOs that do have that expertise. And the other issue is that they drop campaigns, right? So members lose interest. One of the examples in the book is members care about refugees in the UK for a few weeks, and then they lose interest and they care more about the bees. Saving the bees, turns out, brings lots of funding. So I point to this as a limitation that it's hard to campaign for minority rights for these groups. Does a sort of numbness set in? They're affecting political change. They do it around election time, but where people feel, let's ride it out. That's just going to be two weeks. It's going to be a little surge. And so that it promotes a kind of inactivity ultimately. I think one of the things I do try and do in the book is talk about how the model has changed over time. So what you described might be true in some cases of groups are just, in a way, reacting all the time. It's almost like the attention economy gone wild, right? Constantly reacting to what people care about. And it could be, you know, people's revealed preferences aren't always their underlying preferences. So it could be a cat video and then it could be, you know, campaign about climate change, campaign about LGBT rights. And I should note, these are all progressive organizations in the book. So one thing that they do hold in value is that they are campaigning on progressive causes. And we can talk about how non-progressive groups might be using the internet. So that is potentially a limitation, but I'd also note in the book that the organizations I study have at times evolved and have done more issue-specific campaigning and stuck to particular causes and tried to transform their members' interests. So what I mean by that is even if their members respond to, say, surveys that the organizations send out or don't click on the emails, don't open them, don't take the actions, the groups may still run a campaign, say, on refugee rights. And I profile the work of GetUp, which continued to campaign on refugee rights in 2016 in Australia, even after the surge of attention shifted. So late 2015, August, September, October, you have a huge attention, not just in Europe, but around the world to refugee rights. And then people's, as you say, kind of over time, get a little bit tired, move on to other issues, but get up, continue to campaign on trying. They had a long-term goal of trying to close down the detention centers in Nauru and Manus. And over time, they were one of many organizations, not alone, but that coordinated across the refugee sector to try and really change refugee policy in Australia. Yes. And speak a little bit about the coordination techniques. And you said also partnering with traditional NGOs. So how has it worked when they partnered and how they share their mutual strength? So one of the sections of the book asked that question, like how are these new digital advocacy organizations campaigning with established NGOs like Oxfam and Greenpeace? And there's a few different ways. One is for competition to occur. And there are cases where I've heard the older if you like, traditional NGOs feeling a bit frustrated because the newer groups are, you know, sort of wrestling in on issues, swooping in often at the last minute and claiming sometimes success when it was the other established groups that have been campaigning for a long time. That critique I didn't hear so much towards the end of my research. I think it was more of an issue for some of the organizations when they were quite new and maybe less sensitive to the impact they were having on the advocacy sector. A more common example that I got really interested in is the cooperation. So GetUp in Australia cooperated a lot with other refugee advocacy organizations who specialize in refugee rights, okay? This is a big distinction. GetUp's working on economic issues, climate issues. It's working on LGBT issues. It's on welfare. 
And Refugee is one of many. So its membership is much broader than an organization that just works on refugee rights. And that's where it has an, a comparative advantage. It can bring in these broad members and then publicize issues that a more niche organization that, say, works on refugee rights has been campaigning on for a long time. I also profile similar collaborations in New Zealand. And there are many, I should note, that organizations I study stretch to Poland, where the Polish organization Aksha Demokracja has worked on campaigns to stop the Law and Justice Party changing rules around the judiciary's retirement age which was quite an important issue around defending the independence of the judiciary. So real range of issues, but there are examples where they've acted in cooperation and collaboration and formed coalitions. And you've also worked in government. You've worked at the UN and you founded the Te Kuaka think tank. So what have you learned from these many interviews? I mean, they're the collective called Open. What do you take back to your work, say, at your think tank from these conversations? So Te Kuaka, just for listeners to be aware, is an independent organization that campaigns in New Zealand for progressive foreign policy. And one of the projects that we've done in the last year and a half as part of Te Kuaka is to run a campaign to try and get the New Zealand government to support India and South Africa at the WTO on a particular issue. And the issue was that of COVID vaccines and PPE gear where the WTO, the India and South Africa proposed a vaccine, a, a waiver of intellectual property rights. So what India and South Africa wanted to see was that essentially the vaccine recipe, information on the vaccine could be easily shared. So it's quite a technical issue. You know, it's already taken me that long to explain it to you. But one of the issues is that, that a lot of countries were blocking it, including my own country, New Zealand. The US was blocking it. A number, pretty much most of the countries which have organizations which I study in this book. So as a member of Tekawaka, we actually partnered in the end with Action Station, the New Zealand digital advocacy organization, to run an online petition. Alongside other work, we worked with the union movement to coordinate a letter to the prime minister demanding that New Zealand support India and South Africa and that we wanted to see a waiver of intellectual property rights. And initially, the New Zealand government wasn't that keen. But over time, mostly because the U.S. under Biden shifted its position, New Zealand quickly shifted its position. Some of the reflections beyond that very particular campaign, which I'm happy to speak about more, is that the groups that I study, these digital advocacy organizations, were not so well placed to campaign on highly technical issues happening in international organizations. That's because their focus is on the national level. So one of the other limitations is it's really hard to mobilize people at a local level, say New Zealanders, about something happening far away in Geneva at the WTO. That's quite complicated. It's much easier to say, get on the streets to push the New Zealand government to take action on climate change because there's a clearer theory of change. And I think that was something that I was aware of in my research. And it was interesting to then partner with Action Station and see how the organization could support the campaigns, but also the limits of trying to campaign on those sorts of more technical international issues. And I'm very interested in how we can take these partnerships with traditional NGOs, how you can take some of these mobilization techniques to build longer term transformation and inclusiveness. Yeah, I mean, in terms of how the other NGOs are responding, and one of the interesting patterns is that many of them are emulating this organizational model. So NGOs that have an inbuilt attention to long-term campaigning, like Greenpeace campaigning on climate change for decades, Human Rights Watch on human rights issues for decades, or Oxfam on poverty, are seeing the power of trying to mobilize people 
on the streets and online, right? Because these groups are mobilizing people also on the streets. And then, so they have done things like also set up online petitions. And in some cases, members can even start their own petitions. So it's not a member of Oxfam sitting in Oxford or London, but it's a member of, you know, Oxfam who's sitting in Bristol or Norwich or similarly a member of Greenpeace sitting in Bangkok that starts the campaign and that that has power because if the members are driving it, it's driven by their own passion and concern about something that they can directly see that maybe at a headquarters you're not seeing. So I think one of the really interesting reflections coming out of my research is the relationship between staff who are now very professionalized in many NGOs and a broad range of members sitting in very many places and understanding how digital technology can enable people or staff to give over more power and autonomy to their members. And that can, that can open up the organization to, to new ideas and new changes. It doesn't necessarily always good. I don't want to suggest that it's always beneficial for organizations. There's obviously tensions, but it is one feature that I think is interesting in terms of organizational form. As a current undergraduate student in college, the digital era is just becoming more and more prominent. As a global society, lots of communication is reliant on digital platforms, such as social media or emails. Using various platforms can target different audiences for short or long-term goals. It is interesting to see how Nina Hall connects this theme into environmental or social topics and how campaigns can be successful. It seems like anyone with access to the internet can be immersed in any issue facing our community, yet we are naturally directed toward a certain problem. Using that information, these NGOs or advocacy programs can implement effective tactics to better engage people with a variety of issues. Being able to mobilize people across different countries is an impressive feat made by several campaigns and could not be done without technology. As someone who studies biology and is currently focused on how to communicate science to outside groups, this interview with Nina Hall is really helpful in understanding why certain strategies are more powerful than others and how to push for an overall positive impact toward our planet. I am learning about how different age groups require other methods in order to maximize understanding. By listening to this interview, I can further look into my own tactics using media to garner attention toward scientific information or issues. As in line with this podcast, I hope to use my voice and this platform to help spread important information like the ideas presented in this episode to a wide range of audiences. Now, back to the interview. It's very interesting, these implications for international relations. And I'm wondering if you feel it as a step towards democracy for a digital age, you know, even more participatory beyond signing the petition, but getting involved in redesigning governments and institutions. I think there's a lot of interest in the ways and has been for some time that digital technology, like you said, can democratize and that it gives anyone anywhere the about the power to, to engage in political decision making or campaigning. So that's one thing. There's, of course, a bigger literature on two concerning issues of the digital divide. Not everyone has access to digital technology or has the capabilities or time or resources to engage online and also the digital surveillance. So we know increasingly states are using surveillance technologies to monitor what citizens, what NGOs are doing online. So they're two countervailing factors that I think are of concern. So I don't think it's all a rosy picture. And I think we also, we need to be aware of majoritarian impulses. And what I mean by that is obviously there are different interpretations of 
what democratic values look like. Is democracy about going with what the majority think is best or should there be some protection for minority rights? And I think we've seen in many instances where it's just about pure majoritarian, it's much harder to get protections, say, for minority groups like, for instance, refugees, which is one of the examples in my book. But I also talk about Maori and indigenous rights in New Zealand and how we take a majoritarian perspective of trying to mobilize people to take to the streets. It could be quite difficult to mobilize a large enough majority. But if groups are more focused on trying to shape and lead public opinion and transform it, we can actually see some really impressive and interesting changes. And you discussed how different organizations are cooperating. If you could go into a little bit about the Open Online Progressive Engagement Network and when you went in and the questions you were asking. So thanks for asking that. There's two levels to my book maybe as the intro I read out indicated. The first is about the model of digital advocacy organization that's distinct. So get up, move on, action station. The second is specifically about how these organizations are collaborating at the transnational level. So Open, the Online Progressive Engagement Network, is a network that brings together digital advocacy organizations around the world to share tactics and technology What's fascinated me as an IR scholar is that they're all united around exactly the same mode of advocacy, this member-driven, rapid response, multi-issue digital advocacy organization. So part of the book is just like, how is this model spread? Isn't it fascinating that exactly the same model exists as far in such disparate countries as South Africa, Israel, Poland, Sweden, New Zealand, right? And Open has been a critical part of that story of spreading and actively diffusing this model. So I give evidence of how activists from Open have gone to, say, Israel or Ireland and sought out and tried to establish new digital advocacy organizations. And then I show how a core group of advocacy organizations have come together since 2013 at regular summits, which are face-to-face. So it's still important to have face-to-face meetings, even in the digital era, to share their ideas, to share how do they best campaign online? What are some of challenges, whether it be Facebook changing its algorithms or right through to how do they campaign for, you know, refugee rights in in an era of populism? How do they counter far-right attacks? So a whole mix. What do they do about hate speech? How do they think about pushing back on free trade liberalization? So there's a whole range of issues they campaign and discuss and share ideas, as well as sharing the actual technology that underpins these groups. But what's interesting just to sort of leave on this this hook, is that the groups, while they cooperate and share campaigns a lot, they don't campaign on the same issue at the same time with the same target. So what I mean by that is they might all campaign on climate change, but they tend to focus on their national governments. So right now, most of them, I'm sure, will be campaigning in some way on climate, given the current UNFCCC in Egypt. However, they won't be saying mobilize on the streets to change what the UNFCCC is doing. They'll be saying mobilize to put pressure on your minister. And that's an interesting finding for IR scholars who in the late 90s and early 2000s sort of, I think, often assumed with increased globalization, with the increased authority of international organizations, we might see more mobilizations, more transnational campaigns targeting those international institutions. And I find that the groups I study aren't engaged in that. 
it seems like these groups are mobilizing towards positive ends as you analyze it and you analyze the messaging, tapping into feelings of belonging or outrage. Do you have any criticism of them? What did you find? So one way I boil it down is that the way they have for some time thought about their impact is in terms of things like vanity metrics. These are metrics which are like the growthiness of a campaign. So how many people sign a petition in the first 24 hours or how many members are returning for action on a regular basis? How many members do you have? So just having a really big email list of people who you can send out an email to is a source of power for these organizations. And if that's your biggest source of power, then you can easily become very focused on trying to just grow the number of members on that email list and then trying to engage them even on very easy or facile campaigns. So that's, that's a valid critique, which I guess would align with some of, I don't know the dopamine effect uh, work, but I can guess at what it's pointing to. However, I also point out that some of the organizations have become aware of this limitation have become aware that if they're so rapid response and they're so reactive all the time, they're dropping important campaigns and that actually they do need to have long-term goals, which could be around, you know, changing the nature of international finance or capitalism, or it could be around climate, or it could be on LGBT rights, but their advantage is running rapid response. So in a way they have to sort of be thinking in a long-term and then really strategically when they see those windows of opportunity and maybe not dropping campaigns so quickly. Because if you're multi-issue and you're always reacting to when members care about something, but then you're also dropping a campaign, it means that you're not doing anything to sort of carry forward the issue when members do lose interest. And also the age group of the leaders of these organizations are just the breakdown of the different, not the people who are just signing up. So the staff of the organization really range. It can be people in 38 Degrees, which is the British organization, tended to have younger staff members who are often, it was like their first job or second job. So fresh out of, say, a university degree, a master's degree. I should say they all work mostly in like, you know, offices. These aren't just, you know, nebulous organizations on the net. These are places with headquarters and staff and desks and, you know, the normal apparatus of any organization. You can have older, like actually, interestingly, Campact has some campaigners who are in their 50s who've been in doing social movement campaigning in Germany for many years and have been very engaged. So I think I wouldn't want to try and typify the staff except to say that they generally hold strong cosmopolitan values, real concerns about global issues and global inequalities, but they're doing so in a way by addressing national governments and national parliaments. I would say one thing about their members because people often assume the members are like young because they're online, but actually it's the opposite. Most of the time when I talk about these organizations, certainly to my students who are in you know, their 20s, they've never heard of these groups. They, they have no idea what they are. And I think that's partly because there are newer groups that have come on stage. You know, TikTok campaigning is all the rage. And the members of digital advocacy organizations like 38 Degrees or Campact tend to actually also be middle-aged baby boomers, partly because they work on email, right? And the groups that I study are also operating on email a lot. So I would caution people to not make too many assumptions about the members of these groups because it's it surprises most. Yes, it occurred to me when I learned it was email-based. You had mentioned how these techniques may in the future be adapted in a wider scale by non-progressive groups. And also if you could also break down like the variations between the techniques as they're 
successful in, in different countries, like you mentioned, Germany, and how it's adapted locally. So on the first question, the book focuses on digital advocacy organizations that share progressive values because they formed from 1998 with Move On and then an increasing number in the 2000s. In a separate piece of work, I ask, have we seen copycats? Are there examples of groups on the far right or the right conservative actors who've tried to emulate this model that was pioneered by Move On and Get Up and Camp Act? And the piece of research, it's still under peer review, so it's, it's not out in the public domain yet, but I've worked with the Weizenbaum, which is the German Internet Institute, who have a lot of special expertise knowledge on the far right and transnational mobilizations of the right. And what we've found is that there are instances in the US, in Australia, in Germany, and internationally of groups on the right going, wow, Move On is really impactful. This is, you know, we want to create the conservative version of Move On being a grassroots conservative force. And similarly, we've seen that in Australia and Germany. Um, but one of the main differences we've noted is that these groups tend to be more top down in how they're organized. We've seen less evidence of them giving members the ability to set campaign priorities. So we haven't seen, for instance, on their websites, online petition pages where members can start their own petition. And that's what you would see on pretty much all of the organizations on the progressive side of the fence do. You can just go to We Act and start your own campaign. So one of the interesting implications of that finding is are the right and the left organizing differently online? And there's some great work out there by Jen Schrady, who does compare the right and the left and argues the right's actually better at campaigning online often because they're more hierarchical, because they have more resources, because they have a division of labor. And that goes against some of the literature that's suggested the internet is all about democratizing. Anyone can get engaged anywhere in the world and it's overcoming the need to have hierarchies. Actually, I think some of the more informative current research suggests the opposite, that actually hierarchies and division of labor and permanent organizations and staff are important to campaign effectively online. You've mentioned some, but some campaigns you have been involved in and maybe how these strategies, I mean, prior to your knowledge of these organizations, how they might have benefited from some of these digital online strategies. Yeah, it's a good question. I guess my position is not as a, you know, I haven't worked as a professional campaigner. I have somebody who's supported campaigns in the past, whether they be on campaigns around, you know, climate action. As an academic in 2015, I wrote a bit about refugee rights and the global refugee governance regime because it was obviously a really pivotal moment where Europe initially was keeping its borders closed. And one of the things I pointed out in the writing I did in the public space, I wrote a piece for The Guardian, was that, you know, when the refugee convention was set up in 1951, it was only to benefit Europeans, right? It had a geographical limitation. And so the whole refugee regime was set up to help Europe. So wasn't it about time in 2015 for Europe to help the rest of the world? So I guess reflecting on that, a lot of the campaigning I've done has been more issue specific and requires issue expertise. And I think what I've really benefited from is thinking about different strengths of different organizations and that strong campaigns come about, in my view, when you have coalitions of organizations with a lot of skill, say, in digital campaigning or in mobilizing people on the streets and galvanating and organizing people. 
but also working closely with groups that have that expertise. And I think that's where a lot of the interesting developments also in the academic literature are going about organizational ecologies. So seeing the advocacy sector as an ecology, as a space or an ecosystem with lots of different actors. And the question is, how do they complement and work together well? And what drew you to international relations? I guess living in New Zealand, which is a small country tucked away near Antarctica in Australia, I was always interested in what was happening in the rest of the world and followed the international news with a lot of interest and appetite and always wanted to learn another language. And I actually spent a year living in Sicily as an exchange student at age 17 and got really fascinated. I remember the Iraq war happened while I was there. Already back then, the early cases of refugees and asylum seekers coming across from Northern Africa. This was like 2002, 2003, and being washed up, unfortunately, often dead on the shores of Sicily. And I was just thinking, I was obviously highly concerned about this and sort of, I guess, curiosity about how institutions and the international community would respond. And now I'm back here in Italy. Unfortunately, the issue of refugees and migration hasn't gone away. It's still a big issue at the European level. But the discipline of IR, at least for me, is one where you can ask these questions about how do we see change in the international system? How do we tackle big global problems? And there's lots of fascinating literature that can help you understand and unpack always been fascinating for me. New Zealand is a special case in terms of the women leaders and suffrage being established there. Why do you think that New Zealand has been so progressive in that area? I think there are some good stories about it. You know, New Zealand has been strong in terms of giving women the right to to vote very early. It was the first country. And actually, just in the last couple of weeks, the New Zealand parliament became a majoritarian woman. So that was another, another win for women. But I would be hesitant to put it on the pedestal. And I think it's easy in the international arena to see New Zealand as this kind of like progressive human rights, women's rights champion. But there's a lot, unfortunately, in our past that needs to also be highlighted and discussed. New Zealand is a settler state, you know, it's built off confiscated Maori land. And it has for, you know, many in its past been part of building global institutions, including the UN, based on racial hierarchies. So to give you a concrete example, in the League of Nations, when it was being set up, New Zealand was opposed to a a racial equality charter. So the the Japanese government said in 1919 at the Paris Peace Conference, we think part of the League of Nations and part of this new world order after World War I should be acknowledging racial equality. And New Zealand and the US were opposed. And even though it got majority support, Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, scuppered it. New Zealand also claimed mandates. New Zealand was very, very delighted to get a mandate system, which meant that they could inherit the German colony of Samoa and then violently suppressed the rebellion in Samoa. So I raise these because I think it's important for any country to really interrogate its own history and position and to be aware, yes, there are some great, wonderful moments of New Zealand history, but there are also some things that are often not told about New Zealand. And New Zealand's seen as being a leader in race relations when there are actually some very ugly moments in our past, which should be part of our own history teaching in schools, but also part of what the international community also recognizes has, has happened in New Zealand. Oh, it's so important. So many of these histories are forgotten. And it's important to bring it to light because no one has a perfect history. But I think that in the meantime, New Zealand has done many things to make up for that. And so we still do admire so many of the achievements in New Zealand. I hope that other countries can get there. You brought up the education system and how we might 
perhaps uh, improve our educational models to include uh, more civics, more political engagement? You know, what are your reflections on that? So, yeah, I mean, I can speak best to the New Zealand education system because it's what I came through until, you know, I went overseas to do graduate education. And unfortunately in New Zealand, there's very little in the past. There was very little history taught. So most New Zealanders wouldn't learn about the New Zealand wars, which are the wars that took place essentially after, straight after colonization. And this is a big part of our history. So New Zealanders will know about wars that happened in Europe, but not about ones that happened on New Zealand's own soil. I think there are important also things that New Zealand could do better around civic education voting. There's a big campaign in New Zealand at the moment to make it 16, to lower the voting age. And that would be a really exciting thing to happen to invigorate New Zealand democracy. And a number of other countries around the world have lowered the voting age. So I think that would be an opportunity to also build that into schools programs to think more about civics and the act of voting. One small thing I could say about the book is uh, one of the interesting forms of activism that I learned about through writing the book was about distributed or digitally distributed campaigning. And Fridays for Future, the youth climate movement, as well as 350.org have been really pioneering in this. And that's when you think about the massive days of climate action in the last couple of years, where students and adults across the world have all mobilized on the same day to protest for climate action. And they've been united not in terms of the target, they're not all targeting the same international institutional actor, but because they're part of a global mobilization that's putting pressure mostly on national governments, but done through digital technology because they often share an events map. So anyone anywhere in the world can set up their own event or march. And that's, a, I think, a really interesting innovation that's come about as a result of digital technology, being able to connect people in such far-flung places. So I have a a chapter around climate mobilizations and the need to think about if and when that model of digitally distributed campaigning could be applied in other spaces and on other issues. Yes, it's very important and and that level of democratization and accessibility and inclusiveness. And so as you think about the future and some teachers or life lessons that have been important to you and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think it's Important in addition to what you learn in the classroom, what you learn outside of the classroom. And for me, at least, that's about, you know, the conversations you have with somebody on the street, with your neighbors, learning and integrating and reflecting what you've learned in class and interrogating it and critiquing it and getting involved in debates at home with your family and friends, but also taking the time out for yourself, like to enjoy nature. And that's a really big, important part for me of, of balancing the head work, the intellectual thinking with, you know, going for big long cycles in the hills above Bologna or swimming in the sea when I'm back in New Zealand or those sorts of activities that, you know, keep us alive and attuned to the natural world, which is unfortunately not, you know, in such a good condition anymore, but there are still wonderful places to see and enjoy. And I guess on this, since we COP27, what are your hopes for achievements there? I think the COP is going to be a really difficult one this year. Focus on loss and damage. I think that's the developing countries arguing that developed countries should be assisting, giving them financial assistance to deal with the impacts of climate change that have caused loss and damage is a really important issue. And I hope that some progress can be made in that space. And also that countries can continue to be ambitious in their mitigation efforts. And I think that's a real concern is that, you know, countries set out the Paris Agreement, but 
in the Paris Agreement, there was a, a ramping up. There was a commitment that countries would continue to not just commit on a one-off basis, but continue to be more and more ambitious. And I, I hope that we do see this and that when this isn't happening, whether it be listeners, whether it be you know civil society organizations, whether it be academics, whoever's out there to hold governments to account if they're not increasing their ambitions. Well, thank you, Nina Hall, for bringing us behind the curtain of transnational advocacy and how digital organizations are changing the forms of traditional institutions and advocacy organizations and what we can learn from their techniques for mobilization and engagement to affect positive change in the world. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process of One Planet Podcast. Thanks, Mia. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Rio Patel. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope that you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.